Welcome to the Polymer Science Podcast. I am Dr. Alicia Buertes. And I'm Jacob Shackman. In this podcast, we'll be speaking to researchers from around the world and talk to them about how their work is improving our daily lives. I hope you enjoy our conversation and that you learn something new. Hello and welcome back to the Polymer Science Podcast. I hope our listeners have had a wonderful start to their year in 2023. I want to thank you all so much for sticking with us after our hiatus these past few months. As I'm sure we're all familiar, life can be a lot sometimes, but it's not always a bad thing. For example, I'm putting my nose to the grindstone to finally graduate with my PhD this winter. Can you believe it? I can. I can, actually. I'm really proud of myself. Thank you. And my co-host, Dr. Alicia Buetes, has some very exciting announcements of her own. But you'll have to wait until our next episode to hear those. Those are for her to tell. But trust me, they're exciting. In the meantime, please enjoy this interview. Our guest today is Dr. Tristan Clemens, Assistant Professor at the University of Southern Mississippi. And I actually get to be with him today. Dr. Clemens is sitting right in front of me. Dr. Clemens, <laughs> how are you doing? I'm good, good. Thanks for taking the time. And uh, it's been a while for us to try to make this meeting line up. So yeah, yeah. It's gone back and forth. So rescheduling. We got this down now. I'm, I'm grateful. Thank That's you for your That's a great intro. I love that. <laughs> yeah, good. All right. So let's let's have our listeners get to know you a bit. One thing I, I like to ask all of my my guests on the Calendly invitation is, what made you happy today? What are you grateful? And you, you said you're grateful for your students' hard work and getting good results. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, like I've recently been an assistant professor, right? So, it's been one year, uh, almost one year, one month to the day. Just the way we run our students here at um, USM Polymer Sciences, they have that common first year where they get all their coursework at the same time. So it's only really been the last three to four months where I've actually had a couple of grad students now in the group and, and it's, it's really made the journey feel real because now it's like we're troubleshooting problems, we're, we're getting results and seeing how things are going and sitting with the students and working that out. And I just remember that day you sent the invite. Um, yeah, we got some, some kind of nice results on one of our projects and uh, it was just, you know, that's why I'm here and what I love is, is being able to work with the students and it was just a, a moment for me to reflect. Thanks for asking the question on you know, what was nice that day, and that was it. Yeah, yeah. Is this your first time setting up a lab? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit yeah, about that is. process. What, what was what was new? What hit you in the face that you didn't really expect? Um, yeah, so lots of things that I wasn't expecting, and that's the game. Um, definitely first time setting up the lab. One thing that caught me off guard was I took over a lab space that had um, a previous professor in there for um, 30 years, pretty much. He was in the building the whole time since it's been here. And I think when he left, he just dropped the mic and said, see you later, right? And so <laughs> glassware, chemicals, and, and everything else was all left in there. And I was on, you know, young and naive sort of assistant professor coming in. They, the department said, hey, we left the chemicals in here thinking you might be interested because you're doing similar types of chemistry. This is Charlie McCormick. Uh, and I'm doing similar types of chemistry. So I'm like, oh, that's really nice. Of you. You're real generous, you know. But didn't quite realize that it's been sitting vacant for about two and a half years before I came down here which meant all the good stuff has been pillaged, right? I used to be a grad student, so I know how that <laughs> operates, right? So all the good stuff's left, and I'm just left with the things that have to be you know, carefully cleaned out, and that, that took longer than I expected for sure. Um, but, yeah, no complaints now. I mean, that's part of the game and uh, up and running. The other thing that was hard, like, obviously, we're, I started out of the kind of real COVID sort of lockdown period, I guess, um, but still, yeah, issues with supply chains that everyone's hearing about, that stuff's still real in terms of just getting equipment and things like that taking time. But yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to complain about that. People are doing worse off for sure. Admittedly, I I probably took one of those chemicals. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I want that back from the inventory. <laughs> All right, so let, let's get to know you a little bit more personally. So you're here at USM. Let's uh, let's go in reverse order. Actually, no, no, no. I want to start a little bit from the beginning. Tell us where you're from. How'd you get started in, let's say, polymer science? Yeah, okay. So um, I get this question a bit. And uh, so where did I begin? First of all, I grew up in a small town um, called Bunbury uh, in Western Australia. So pretty much if you think about what Australia looks like on a map, we're in the far southwest corner. Most people, when they think about Australia, are thinking about sort of Brisbane, Sydney, Melbourne, you know, down the east coast and Perth, the capital city out in the Western Australia. Um, is out to our side on the totally other side. So it's kind of like the equivalent of Los Angeles versus, you know, New York being on the East Coast, right? Um, so I grew up in a small country town. Uh, my parents own farmland. Uh, and so we have beef cattle and take hay off and things like that. And so I think my interest in science maybe just came from being pretty inquisitive. Like I was the kid that was always asking questions of like, you know, why does this happen? And, and what's that about? You know, annoying my dad pretty much about, you know, trying to get answers to those things. And when it wasn't my dad, then it was my science teachers, right, trying to figure that out. And so um, that was where I began sort of getting interested about science. And I love just figuring out how things work, right? That kind of really is, is what gets me going. I think about polymer science. I think the reason I'm in polymers and what I like about polymers is obviously the natural connection to biomaterials. Um, and I really like the idea of tissue regeneration. And that's a big focus of our lab now. Uh, but, you know, why did I get first excited about polymers? Um, there's, there's a Two answers, really. The first one is is that it's probably one of the quickest ways to go from something very small to having something in your hands, like as a material product that you can kind of play with and do something with, right? So in a matter of seconds, minutes, you can really have some some material, right? You know, something that scales. So I love how polymer scales so quickly. Um, and I also am not a good enough chemist to be doing like medicinal <laughs> chemistry or like carbohydrate chemistry or something like that, right? So you know, I love probably the accessibility of, of polymer chemistry, especially when you think about some of the, you know, control radical techniques and things like that that I, I mean, you know, work a lot in in our lab. Um, that probably attracts me to it as well. But, you know, and that's probably a thrust of our group too is trying to help keep make these chemistries be, be more and more accessible, right? You know, with some of the work we do interfacing with high school students and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Was your undergraduate degree, was there any polymer focus or was it chemistry? <laughs> like a, when at what point did you go – it sounds like you, you started to learn about what polymers are and how, how they interested you. But at what point in your academic career did you decide, you know what, I'm, I'm going to study polymers probably for the rest of my life? Yeah, yeah. so when did I say I'm going to be a polymer chemist and call yeah. myself that from a tag? Yeah, probably a year ago when I started a position <laughs> in the USA what? Polymer Science and Engineering. No, I mean, I, I um, have always worked with polymers but have never – it's funny because I'm now teaching, you know, pretty serious polymer, polymer organic chemistry um, in the department here but never took any polymer courses myself, like, you know, official training in that space. All has been learned on the job during PhD, postdoctoral time and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I've always, again, been enamored by what polymers can do and the opportunities they can provide and truly believe that they're going to play a really important role in the next, you know, 100 years. We just celebrated the 100-year kind of anniversary of the macromolecular hypothesis. And, you know, I'm very confident that polymers are going to play a big role in the next 100 years of society. And so that's why I wanted to, you know, put myself in this position and be in this department and you know I'm excited one thing that I've found about joining a you know polymer specific department like we have here at USM is that you know I'm learning new things about polymers right and that keeps me excited you know I mean that's why I love academia is that you just keep learning and, and getting exposed to new things and new ideas and you know that's that's exciting so yeah. is there 
I'm going to be ashamed. Maybe I don't know, but you said the hundred year anniversary of the macromolecular hypothesis. Yeah, is there like a, a singular statement that represents? There's a there's a paper from from Hermann Stordinger that was published. Uh, I think yeah, 1921, right? Uh, that sort of said, yep, this is the idea about macromolecular sort of. I think we can make polymers. Um, it, it's written in German, uh, and uh, yeah, that's the that's the the kind of point that everyone looks back to and says that's where polymer science began right obviously polymers have been around forever if you think about biopolymers in the body and stuff like that but uh you know when we started studying them as a science that's the point that everyone points to i guess and or that paper and they say that's where it began so awesome yeah the inception of polymers as an idea and and what what gets me excited about that as well is then you think about like you know so that was just over 100 years ago right um and the only reason i knew that i don't want to make you feel bad the only reason i knew that i do (laughs) Too late. <laughs> is that I was part of some review papers that were around sort of celebrating, uh, you know, 100 years of polymer science. So I didn't know any of that until, you know, I was uh, working on these review papers, you know, two years back. Um, but the other thing that I find really interesting and, in, in, you know, about USM polymer science and especially where we are right now and is that, you know, we've just celebrated 52 years of history of polymer science here at, at USM. And you think, well, like that's amazing, right? That for half the life of polymer science as a science you know usm has had a stake in that game right that's kind of cool that is cool and so i was i'm always impressed when i think about that that you know like we're pretty early on in the game and 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 most of the polymer science departments are as well i'm not just saying we're the only one but um you know i like you know my role and being able to join that that history right and try and contribute to that for sure yeah we are the only one in southern miss though so (laughs) that's correct we gotta we've got to put that as a part of recruitment too (laughs) that longer than half of the existence Mm -hmm. of idea of polymer science so where were you prior to being an assistant professor at USM? Yeah, so um, obviously where I grew up, Bunbury, small sort of country town at the time, um, no university there. So we, or not a major university to do sort of, um, you know, I guess to do the chemistry that I wanted to do. So I went to uh, the University of um, Curtin, or Curtin University it's called, I'm thinking wrong, uh, to do my undergraduate. Uh, I did an undergraduate in the Bachelor of Science with a uh, major in nanotechnology, it was called at the time. So I did a lot of work on not just organic materials, but also inorganic materials and sort of looking at sort of electromagnetism and crystallography and things like that. At the end of that, I actually took a year off. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after the end of my bachelor's and I um, did a diploma of education. So I'm actually a qualified secondary school teacher in science nice. and mathematics. Yes, yeah, so that's a one year you can do in Australia. And at that point, I was kind of thinking I might jump into teaching, right? Because I really do love education, was looking at secondary level, like high school teaching. And during that year, um, a few things happened, but I, um, you know, a good friend of mine was in a car accident and, uh, and she is now um, quadriplegic from the injury she sustained in that accident, right? And this is a good friend of mine from high school. And, and at that point, you know, I started to see some research around sort of neural regeneration and opportunities in nanotechnology for that sort of thing, right? And so that kind of all happened around the same time and made me start looking at sort of graduate school and found a really good group that was looking at some, some ways of breaking down glial scar tissue, which is, you know, one of the major inhibitors after a, a neurotraumatic event that stops neurons to be able to like regrow and synapses to reconnect following uh, an injury. And so we're looking at ways to target that um, um, scar tissue essentially in the brain or in the, the central nervous system. And so part of me to get inspired to do graduate study was to think about ways I could sort of you know, contribute to, you know, something I'd seen firsthand, I guess, with a good friend of mine. So that's why I put, you know, going back to education on the back burner at that time. You know, I always tell people that I'd like to think that I could retire as a secondary school teacher, um, which obviously annoys teachers. <laughs> and I mean, no disrespect when I say that, but, but I just think, 
you know, I'd love to be able to get to that point where I can give back to, to high school because that's where I kind of really decided that, okay, chemistry is going to be it for me, right? And so I like that opportunity to have some impact in that sort of age group, that space. And so, um, so yeah, that's my PhD. So my PhD was at the University of Western Australia. So there's only there's about four major universities in Perth, which is the capital city of Western Australia. Curtin University is on the south side of the river and the University of Western Australia is on the, the north side of the river. So I crossed the river to do my PhD, uh, worked on a range of different things, looking at polymeric nanoparticles for drug delivery applications. We delivered everything in my PhD from looking at enzyme stabilization right through to small molecule chemotherapeutics, through to peptides and, and different biologics. And so got a really good kind of introduction into, you know, biology, disease pathology and injury pathology and things like that, and still using polymers as the tool to, to treat those injuries and diseases. And so, you know, again, I like to tell people this, especially if students are listening, but I, I had no biology background. So, yeah, <laughs> as an undergrad, had no real formal polymer training. And had no biology background, right, at all. Learned all that in my PhD and postdoc. And now I'm trying to lead a group on polymers and, and you know, bioapplications, right? So, yeah, I guess you you can do whatever you want if you put your mind to it maybe is the, the theme there. Yeah. But also, you know, that's the thing about a PhD is that you just – you don't learn – I mean, you do learn a specific area, but you learn how to learn in a PhD, right? And that's kind of what I took from that experience. Now, how did uh... – playing hockey and I, I say hockey because when I learned you played you referred to it as only hockey but to all my listeners it, <laughs> we're talking about field hockey and I, let me correct myself again actually um, my co-host Alicia Buetes, Dr. Alicia Buetes, played field hockey growing up I'm curious Alicia if you just called it hockey also yeah but probably, we'll out, probably yeah? in South Africa you would think so right yeah but, but, uh, yeah. but Dr. Clemens here was on the Australian national team <laughs> I was yeah so, uh, yeah, so I, I debuted for Australia in uh, 2011 uh, and played right through to 2018, which is when I kind of finished up my fellowship in Australia and came to the U.S. for my postdoc uh, at Northwestern. But so, yeah, for my whole Ph.D. career, so I started my Ph.D. in 2011. So for the whole time of Ph.D. and then a, a four-year fellowship um, following that from the National Health and Medical Research Council, kind of like Australia's version of the NIH, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was playing uh, elite-level sport. Um, yeah. And I think I was very fortunate that I had a, a PhD supervisor and a mentor that, that allowed me to do that, right? And could see the value of that. And he knew that, you know, if I wasn't in the lab doing experiments, it, it, it wasn't like I was off, you know, having beers at the pub or, you know, out with friends just, you know, cruising around or, or not turning up. I was usually either training early in the morning or training in the evening or at a tournament somewhere, right? So, yeah. Um, he, once we had that trust and he trusted that I was, you know, working when I could and, and was back when I needed to be and, you know, also when I was traveling with the team, you know, you know, guys would be off just having coffee or hanging out and not have to be, you know, working on papers or doing reading and stuff like that. But, you know, made it work and very proud of the, you know, what I was able to do as a hockey player, but also, you know, proud of what I was doing, able to do as a PhD student at the time for sure. Tell us a little bit more about how that, what that did for you, how, how, what, how that helped you being able to have this sort of uh, energetic outlet outside of the lab. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I, I've spoken a lot about this, but it definitely, I think I was a better scientist and because of my hockey and I was a better hockey player because of my science. And, and what I mean by that is, is, you know, my PhD and my postdoctoral work, I mean, I was looking at, you know, treatments for, for, you know, I guess central nervous system injuries, right. And for cancer treatments and heart disease. And so these things are impactful and meaningful. And whenever you speak to someone, someone has a story connected to those, you know, injuries or pathologies. And so, you know, it's very easy to see the meaning of what I was doing from a, from a, you know, my research, 
And so that meant that if I, you know, missed a selection or had an injury or was out of form, for example, on the hockey pitch, then I could just dive into the lab and get stuck into my research and kind of really immerse myself in something that was still very meaningful and, you know, I had a lot of passion for. And likewise, on the other side, you know, we all know that when you're doing a PhD, a lot of things go wrong, right? I mean, you have experiments go wrong, experiments don't work, paper gets rejected, things like that. You're asked for some funding, you don't get it. Those things, you know, rejection's part of the game. And so, when those things happened, I could go out and just have fun with my mates on the hockey pitch and play hockey again, immerse myself in something that was very meaningful to me. And, um, you know, I think they balance each other really, really well. Yeah, so. yeah. You probably don't get to play too much around around here, huh? <laughs> yeah, so actually it was – so, yeah, I mean, it leads to, the I guess, the next sort of major transition in our life. But, you know, I retired from international field hockey. We, we sold a business, finished up a job at one university, moved across the world, started a new job. Totally different climate when you think about Chicago, Illinois, from Perth, Western Australia, and that. And then we had a child. Uh, my wife and I had a child in within this six month kind of window, right? So we had a lot of wow. flux in that time. And I probably didn't give myself, if I think about you know my first year of my postdoc at, at Northwestern, didn't give myself enough time to probably adjust to that hole that taking out field hockey kind of left, right? Because you know you train eight times a week, for example, with twenty of your mates that you see more times than I'd see my wife some weeks, right? I'd be hanging out with the guys. <laughs> And so, you know, and you all of a sudden go cold turkey on that, right? No field hockey, you stop it. Um, you know, I, I struggled a little bit instead of adjusting in that space for sure. You ever play lacrosse? <laughs> yeah, I, I read on the website when oh, yeah? I was doing my research for this interview that, that you bring your lacrosse stick to you, work every you day. You haven't seen me with my lacrosse stick? I mean, I just, I mean, I don't know why you bring it. Why, do you, why, why that not? Just it's in like, case? you ever see someone walking around just bouncing a basketball? No, I do no? not. Okay, well, that's weird too, I guess. <laughs> That's my. That's, do, you, do, you, do you just like have a ball in there and just like flick it around? Yeah, and stuff? yeah. I just it's it's for the way I see it is uh, you know if you're if I'm on the lacrosse field and I have to get from point A to B, it, it's you can't just walk there. You right, the stick shakes yeah. in a certain way. You have to carry it a certain way. So when I'm walking around, I'm practicing how I cradle the ball. I like that. Throw it throw it against the wall here and there. I actually have a specific place that I area that I park. Because all oh, the path to the building, you get a couple of walls. To there's a about. couple of walls. Well, yeah, there's a couple of good walls. <laughs> Otherwise, there are some nice spots right here we can see out your window, but there are no walls. I no, like that. No fun on that walk. I'd love to come out and throw a ball. Yeah, I mean, I haven't oh. played much lacrosse, but I, uh, I mean, I, maybe I'll let you know a little secret too. In my car, I normally have a baseball that I keep in the driver's side door. Yeah, because I, I get like you know, angry at bad drivers, I should say. And it's my stress relief. You know, I sort of put, pick the baseball ball. I just throw it around in my hand and just like fiddling with it. You know what I mean? As I'm sitting yeah. at traffic lights yeah. or whatever. Um, but there's something about the, you know, the leather of baseball and, the, and and never, not that I played at any level of that, but I do like holding one and just throwing it around and stuff in the car. So you pull up next to me in the traffic lights. Sometimes you see me just flipping a baseball around. So that's similar. So whenever you're yeah. angry at another driver, you just pick up a baseball. Yeah, I mean, imagine, imagine if I get really angry, right? Yeah, that's that what baseball. I am imagining right now, actually. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's never gone to that. I've still got the exact same baseball I've always had, so <laughs> I've good. never lost it out the window. Well, you, have, you have a way to get that out. <laughs> All right, so um, you then you went to Northwestern. Let's let's get there. Yeah, so the postdoc uh, at Northwestern, so my fellowship in Australia was finishing up. Fellowship was focused on – we changed tact a little bit by looking at um, nanomaterials for um, wound healing and burn injury sort of uh, treatments, and that was – Really fascinating to learn a new pathology and a new sort of disease area that I didn't have much um, background in, but you know, do now. And and the, and the Clemens Lab is still interested in areas of that from a research standpoint. And at this point, it wasn't like you said you were in nanomaterials then, mm -hmm. and that it wasn't. How do I ask this? When you went to Northwestern, 
you were getting into nanomaterials. Was this when you were like, oh, okay, this is the polymer science now is really, really starting to pick up? Or did that happen with the nanotech? Uh, yeah, so at- all of the work, was, all our nanoparticles were polymer-based, gotcha. but we'd also okay. incorporate some inorganics like iron oxide and things uh-huh. for um, imaging contrast and things like that. But by that point, my PhD was all around based around making different polymers for, gotcha. for drug delivery and things like that. So, yeah, by that stage, I kind of realized polymers are pretty cool and want to keep working with them. And then, yeah, Northwestern, so I worked with uh, Sam Stoop. He was a fantastic lab, fantastic mentor, um, and he kind of has pioneered work in this space of peptide amplifiers or supramolecular polymers. So, you know, you think about polymers, traditional polymers where they're, you know, the monomers are held together by covalent bonds. You know, supramolecular polymers, they're held together by non-covalent interactions like hydrogen bonding or hydrophobic interactions. And, you know, an area I had no idea about before coming, in fact, I – had never made a peptide in my postdoc or my, my PhD in Australia. And before coming to the Stoop Lab, once I'd found out that, okay, I've been accepted, I'm going to come across here, I called a buddy of mine who had his, uh, he worked in a lab at uh, University of New South Wales, so UNSW in Australia, out in Sydney. And I said, man, you got to teach me some peptide chemistry. <laughs> He's like, why is that? I said, I'm going to Sam Stoop's lab and all they do is peptide chemistry, so i got to get some of that <laughs> under my belt. So I went out and just sort of did a two-week crash course with him and kind of got some basics before I went across to the U.S. And... Um, yeah, had three years with Sam Stoop, worked on you know, primarily tissue regeneration applications with his peptide amplifier sort of uh, uh, materials. And I always tell uh, Sam that he, it's an amazing place to do research. You know, I used to tell him it's like Disney World for a scientist because in terms of, you know, materials, in terms of expertise that are around you, in terms of equipment and things like that, you know, Northwestern was a fantastic place to be. Yeah. Um, and to experience that for a couple of years was, was amazing. That sounds awesome. Tell us, what, what is a peptide? How, why do you have to know how to do peptide chemistry to understand tissue, tissue regeneration? Yeah, so the, the, the real nice thing about their peptide amplifiers and the supramolecular polymers we worked on um, is that they're built primarily just from, from amino acids pretty much, uh, so peptide bonds between amino acids and lipids essentially to, to program their self-assembly. And so amino acids are the building blocks of proteins essentially in the body. And so the nice thing about those from a biomaterial standpoint is that they can be degraded back to just lipids and amino acids, which you know are common to the body and, and are able to be excreted or repurposed into making more proteins and things like that. So, you know, very biocompatible materials to think about. But you know, I love the aspect of being able to program these monomers essentially to assemble into a structure that you want, and that sort of ability to make a molecule that can then you know on its own self-assemble. Right, was fantastic. Um, the other thing I think that's really impressive from peptide amplifier standpoint is that they can have these material properties like what we see for traditional polymers and hydrogels, for example. But they, uh, you know, they're very well characterized in the fact that you know the monomer, the peptide amplifier, you know exactly what that is. You can get a mass spec of it, clean as exactly the the, the molecule you've made, but it assembles to have these macromolecular properties, right? You know, one of the challenges with polymer chemistry is that you know the materials you make are inherently often polydispersed, right? And that becomes a problem when you think Can about... You, what do you mean by polydispersed? So they have, you know, the molecular weight of one polymer chain in a mixture is, is different to the next polymer chain, different to the next one, right? So it's really hard. When you think about calculating the molecular weight of hexane, for example, we know how to do that. You can take all the carbons, all the protons in there and add them together and get you one molecular weight, right? You can do the same thing for peptide amphibol molecule as well. But with a polymer, it's difficult to do that because of the way we make these, whether it's with radical initiation or other techniques, for example, that 
there's inherently going to be dispersity in that molecular weight you get. And that's what we talk about in terms of polydispersity. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that's important from a bio standpoint is whenever, you know, we're putting things in the body and the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration that approves and kind of is the, you know, the checks and balances behind, you know, drugs that are developed and things like that and therapeutic devices, uh, you know, they want to make sure that they can be very confident they know exactly what it is, right? And so polydispersity is a problem when you start thinking about things for FDA clearance and things. So, so that's why I quite like the, the peptidamphile um, construct. And, and I also love that, you know, when I arrived into the group in 2018, that, you know, Sam Stoop by that stage had kind of been working on these things for about 20 years, right? And as a postdoc coming in, you think, ah, oh, they've got this stuff dialed out, right? They know exactly what all these things do and how they assemble and, and what we can do with them. But there's still so many fundamental questions that, that needed to be answered and were being worked on, which was just exciting, right, to know that, you know, a space that has many people working on, me being new to the field, could bring in different ideas from polymer chemistry background and kind of try and dovetail in with what they were doing was just an exciting time to be, be working on it for sure. You've talked a lot about uh, assembly and self-assembly. I'm really glad you did because that leads me to this quote I have here where when I pull up your site, your website, which oh, let me let me <laughs> read that quickly to the audience and I'll be sure to link that, clemenslab.com. The first thing you see when you pull that up is, Soft matter science at the interface of synthetic and biological self-assembly. <laughs> That's a hot sentence, right? That's good. Oh, yeah. That probably, well, took, me, that probably took me some time to figure out. Yeah, so. I, I know, but you're right. That is that is a good sentence. And actually, you, you add here that your primary focus is the integration of polymer chemistry, both covalent and supramolecular, which you've talked about a bit, with biology to provide novel function and therapeutic strategies for the treatment of disease and injury. Wow. I like that. Yeah. I, I can't believe I wrote that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You didn't pay anybody? That you was good. You told me you were going to talk about grabbing the website. And I was like, I got to get back in there and update that. I haven't been on it for yeah, a couple yeah, of months. Yeah. Clearly, been, it's been, been a while. Been Who busy did this? trying to be an assistant professor. But, you know, the website is a funny story because I, um, so I want to talk a little bit about that. So when, when you go out and, and apply to, you know, apply to become an assistant professor, essentially, right? In the US, it's, it's a big, big beast. It's not the same in Australia, essentially, but it's like, it's like draft day, right? If you're an NFL fan or something like that, where, you know, chemistry jobs and, and chemical engineering jobs and biomedical engineering, they're all kind of coming out at the same sort of time, like August, September, October. Applications due October, November, December, say, with interviews all happening in the, you know, the, the new year, essentially. And then, um, you know, everyone's kind of on that same time scale, right? And so you're out there and you're applying like crazy and you're putting applications out to, you know, different schools and different areas, writing new cover letters, writing new projects, all that sort of stuff. And it's a pretty involved process. But the point of setting the website up, I actually set that up and to have a, a sort of a web presence for the lab and the vision for the lab was um, twofold. One, I wanted that out there, right? It's important to show that, you know, some from a branding exercise, this is what we want to do and this is what we're about. Um, but the other part was is, you know, just diving a little bit into Google Analytics allows you to kind of see where people are looking at your website, right? And so as I was applying for jobs, I didn't, you know, advertise my website, right? I didn't let people anyone know that it was out there. But on all of my documents for applications, I put my website on there and stuff, clemenslab.com. And I'd be able to watch Google Analytics. And so you could very easily see when, you know, a department in an area or a new city or town was like, oh, there's a few looks over here, right? There's a few people in Hattiesburg, Mississippi interested in your website. So someone's gone to that. So it gave me a little chance to maybe get a heads up on where my application was getting some traction at and where it wasn't. Yeah, clever. <laughs> so, I like so, that. So, yeah, that's a little gamer there for anyone else that's listening and maybe going on the job market is that that kind of worked out pretty well for me because 
you know, because it wasn't out there, no one else really knew about it except through the job applications. Yeah, so, so the only away. people that are going to see it are the ones you've, who've, you've Sent submitted an application to. to, right? So that's a, that's a good idea. I not like that, it. Not that it helped me at all, right? I mean, well, you're here. <laughs> I don't know if it helped at all. It maybe just probably made me more anxious through that whole process. <laughs> but at least at least I knew that people were looking at it somewhere in some places, right? So it was yeah. getting some. So yeah, that was uh, that was why the website came about. Um, and yeah, I guess do you want to talk a little bit yeah, about what we're doing I, now? I absolutely do. Well, mm. website aside, I'll ask you, what would you say is the focus of your lab's research right now? Yeah, so I think from a from a you know a single kind of sentence space, and we really love the you know the ability that polymers give us, covalent polymers as we traditionally think about them, and especially controlled radical polymerization allows us to you know get different architectures of polymers, but just that that rapid kind of scalability, you know, cost economics is pretty cheap when you think about polymers compared to other materials. Uh, and the material properties you get from covalent polymers are amazing, right? One of the challenges with covalent polymerization still at the moment is how do you go about getting that sort of sequence control, that monomer to monomer kind of you know control over these uh, these systems, and that's quite challenging still. So I like if you think about peptides and, and what we can do with solid phase peptide synthesis on the other side of this is you can have the ability to make different peptide sequences that can interface really intimately with biology, whether it's for signaling whether it's for instructing cells to do different things, whether it's for self-assembly, like what we did, you know, when I was uh, in my postdoc in the Stoop Lab. And so, you know, taking those two spheres pretty much, you know, the, the polymer chemistry and controlled radical polymerization and step, and step growth peptide chemistry, for example, and how can we kind of marry those together and get some of the benefits of both of those is kind of, you know, a lot of our projects are spaced in that, in that kind of wedge, I guess, with peptides at one side and polymer at the other. And we have some projects that are, totally polymer, basic polymer science focused, covalent polymer focused, and some that are fully peptide focused, but the majority sit kind of in that sort of, uh, you know, space between those two. Um, you know, I think there's lots of opportunity and, and to think about, you know, how we can make polymers instructed by biology or in the presence of biology and, and, and have biomaterials that actually start to, you know, hear and listen, I guess, to what's happening around them from a disease perspective you know, state or from a pathology state. Wait, well, can so. uh, expand on that a bit. What do you mean by, by what you just said, where you're having a disease or virus, something listening to the polymers that we're making? Yeah. So like if you think about, um, you know, when our body goes under, you know, goes through an injury, right? Uh, so think about, let's say stroke, for example, right? Or, or heart disease, like a heart attack. Okay. Like biochemically, things are changing very rapidly in the body, right? There's iron flux of different metals like calcium, for example. There's pH changes. There's changes in reactive oxygen species, things like that. And all these things we can tap into to either make materials, you know, um, generate, like so materials you know, build, but also have materials go away or have materials release for therapeutic applications. And so, you know, we're very interested in trying to tap into those things for controlled delivery, but also for tissue regeneration applications as well and how we can use that um, to our advantage. And, you know, I think some of those things have been kind of addressed with polymer chemistry, but I also think, you know, if you think about how polymers have been used um, for, for disease treatment at the moment, you know, there's kind of two main ways. It's either being used as a, a carrier or a protector of a, you know, therapeutic, you know, a traditional chemotherapeutic, for example, and you have this polymer particle where you end up delivering a whole lot of polymer um, for a small amount of therapeutic to get to where it needs to go. And, and that was definitely my PhD, right? I mean, that's what we did. And I always used to be kind of, you know, I guess annoyed or, or frustrated with that that we had to you know you know maybe the polymer particle from a weight per weight loading percentage you only have ten or fifteen percent loading of the actual therapeutic so lots of polymer going in there for only a small amount of sort of bang for your buck almost right and I think there's opportunities to make the polymer become more therapeutic in its action right so how do you actually make the polymer 
be the therapeutic or you know be therapeutically active uh, instead of just being the carrier for you know a known therapeutic right or a chemotherapeutic for example if we're thinking about cancer it, it seems like you there was i was going through some of the lit- some of the literature that you'd had on your your site and there i found well i hope i can say this right proapoptotic proapoptotic proaptotic yeah proaptotic <laughs> no no there's definitely something proap proaptotic there's an extra op in there that no, is not proaptotic i'm p r o a p o PT. Then maybe there's a typo on my website, but yeah. Oh, it's on the paper. Proaptotic? Proaptotic. Okay, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll accept that it's probably a typo on the paper, but man, that I was sitting there for like five minutes earlier. Proaptotic peptide brush polymer nanoparticles. So this sound, this was, seemed like an example of what you were discussing here. In this paper, they, there were micelles being formulated and a specific sequence of peptides attached to the, the, uh, the polymer arms here. Yeah, so that's a, that's a that's a great paper to bring up, right? So so that was work, and great for a few reasons, right? The the first one is is so that that work was led by um, Nathan Gineshki and his group, and his postdoc at the time, uh, Hao Sun, who's now an assistant professor at, at the University of New Haven. Um, and so we both started out in the same year. Um, we were both postdocing at, at Northwestern at the same time, and the Gineshki lab sat literally the floor below where I sat in the Stoop lab. And so yeah, Nathan Gineshki is another Australian guy, which is kind of nice. He gave a talk in the first few months that I was at Northwestern. I asked a question at the end of it, and uh, he answered with something like, hey, normally they only let one of us in a room at a time. Like, what are you doing here? And, and I remember being like, whoa, what's he, he's having a go. This guy's a pretty cool dude, and he's kind of called me out. Um, he had to answer my question, and then we, we chatted afterwards, and he's been a fantastic kind of mentor of mine um, just from a, you know, a range of different areas, just you know, you know, purely because I'm another Australian in research, you know, polymer research, say, in the US. So I've been very grateful to have that support from him. Um, but this collaboration with Howe as the lead author came from that, right? Just from talking about ideas and can I help? What can I provide? And that's sort of where it came about. That works really neat. So that works using um, polymerization induced self-assembly now. So growing block copolymers, but as that po- hydrophobic block, so we're talking about a hydrophilic block and a hydrophobic block of a, a copolymer now, uh, and they can then self-assemble into micelles because the hydrophobic block in an aqueous environment wants to get away from the water and it packs to itself to make the core of the micelle essentially. Mm-hmm. And so the nice thing about PISA, polymerization-induced self-assembly, is that as that hydrophobic block that keeps growing, it then has this critical point where it then forms the, the micelles. And you can do that and get fairly high solid content, so fairly high concentrations of the nanoparticles in that space. Um, compared to previous approaches where you'd have to make a block copolymer, purify them, have the right solvent exchange systems, then make the micelles, right? So it's kind of a robust technique. Is, is the, this photopolymerization-induced self-assembly, is this, is this sort of just utilizing um, phase separation as the, the polymers so, come together? So the, the, Yeah, so, so exactly. So the thing I like about that paper so much and, and the work was that twofold, if I go back to my point around making the polymer be more therapeutically active, so in that case, the hydrophilic block, Actually had a peptide sequence on it that oh, was which I loved. FYI, the the KLA KLA. I like to just read it as clack 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 clack. I assume that's how you use it in lab. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. The KLA repeat or the clack clack repeat. Exactly. So so that peptide's proaptotic, so it's known to actually induce cell death, right? And so, but it's very hydrophilic because of all the the lysine residues in that, right? So the the idea was was okay. So we can put that on the hydrophilic block. Then when these self-assemble, we're presenting that peptide out to the to the cells, essentially, right, that we wanted to deliver to. So you're thinking about cancer cell, a cell you want to get rid of, you deliver these nanoparticles, you have high toxicity of the cell population you want. 
the thing that's uh, really nice about that work is that what they found and what we found, I should say, is that you know having that, that clack-clack peptide presented on the surface of these polymers actually had greater stability because of that covalent polymer there as well against proteases and things that are very good at being in the body at degrading um, peptides. So, um, you know, the polymer is now acting as both, you know, the, the particle, right, the formation of the particle. It's also now protecting the, the protein or the, the peptide, I should say, from protease degradation. And also it's having this therapeutic um, capability because it's actually the, the hybrid between the peptide and the polymer that's causing the toxicity in the cells that we want. And so, you can really see some opportunity in that space to think about adding in maybe more traditional chemotherapeutics into that self-assembly approach. So you could have them being sort of, you know, a double effect of chemotherapeutic being released and the, the KLA sort of peptide being um, proaptotic as well. So, and, and the other thing that, that's kind of glossed over as well in all of that is that this was also made in a one-pot synthesis using photo um, polymerization in an aqueous uh, buffer, right? So again, going back to that point we kind of opened with about accessibility of controlled radical techniques and, and keeping that. This is done with LEDs that you brought off of Amazon for 20 bucks, right? Uh, and uh, and yeah, doing it in water or an aqueous base buffer uh, is pretty cool stuff. That is really cool. I'm, I'm looking at, and again, folks, I'll, I'll link the, at the very least the title. I hope you have access. I'm going to have to figure out how to even add this, but I'm wondering if our listeners actually get access to this paper. Uh, remember, there's a typo in the title. Uh, but but what, what made me want to talk about this, I'm looking at – I might as well show you Yeah, right I bet say you're talking to me. I'm looking at it. Yeah. I, I'm looking at this structure, and it's just – it's it's amazing that this is a, a one-pot synthesis. Like, I, I, I'm trying to visualize this happening, right? And mm -hmm. how, how do you end up with these, you know, core shell micelles? Mm -hmm. And instead of just – if it's all in one pot, how do you not just get some entangled network? So that's the that's the nice thing about – controlled radical polymerization, right, is that you can do the polymerization with the peptide uh, monomer and then we had a co-polymerization with the peptide functionalized and then just an unfunctionalized monomer here being the, the dimethylchilamide, right, so the DMA. And you can run that to pretty much completion where there's no more vinyl sort of groups in there, right, so there's no more of that monomer left for the hydrophilic block mm -hmm. and then you then add in the, the hydrophobic monomer to then start that PISA process, right, and yeah. grow that off the end. So, so you do have a true kind of dye block copolymer process in that. That incredibly so, clever, yeah. So let's let's go back, uh, turn it back to your lab a bit, and let's say in five years, what would you like to have co accomplished from your research group? Good question. Hard hitting. Also, just let the listeners know that the band started practicing on the open. Oh, so There's a little, little bit of background noise that you get in the yeah, in the penthouse office up able, here. Yeah, I should be okay. able to get that out of there. <laughs> um, yeah, so where do I want it to be in five years? I think, you know, the thing that, that, that draws me to this role um, is, you know, students, right, and, and what we're doing with students. So I think the, the easy answer for me would be, okay, I want to be funded. I want to still, I want to, <laughs> you know, I want to still be here in five yeah. years, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> I want to have made tenure, right? I want to be able to keep my job. Um, you know, that's probably the easy answer. But, you know, I think from a, you know, what am I looking forward to the most is graduating my PhD students out, right? And, and seeing them go to postdoc in the lab now and seeing them go off and do great things because, you know, I think that's going to be the real thing that I'll be able to hang my hat on as a professor as I go hopefully doing this, to, you know, for, for a long period of time is, the, you know, seeing where my students get to and what they do and seeing them succeed, right? Because mm -hmm. that's the, the real thing that I enjoy most about this job is just being able to, you know, and I've been fortunate to, you know, I think from a, going back to the hockey sense, right, I think I, 
think I probably tapped out my, you know, I wasn't the most talented hockey player, right? But I worked really hard. And you were on the Australian national team. Yeah, <laughs> you were you were pretty good. Let's say that. Well, yeah, but I think I, I, don't, I mean, I think I had to work pretty hard to get there. I don't know if I had much more. You never want to limit yourself. But I don't know if I had a heap of capacity beyond where I got to, right? I think I kind of got most out of that. And I, I love helping students, um, especially like realize that there's there's more potential than what they're giving themselves, right? You know, they might see a limit and then sort of, you know, you can help them blow that limit up and see that they can go higher and further. And I think that's really, really powerful. So five years from now, yeah, hopefully I've graduated a couple of PhD students by then and they're off doing amazing things and whatever they want to be doing. Um, from a research standpoint, yeah, like I'm really interested in, you know, like if you think about the body, the human body, the bio macromolecules that make us up are so important to daily living and, and what we can do, right? And so, you know, synthetic polymerization has a real role to play in terms of being able to mimic that, be involved in that and actually contribute to that. And so I really am interested in that interface with how can we make that happen and, and, and how synthetic polymerization can play a role in the body and with the body. So. What are, can you list some of the, the pie-in-the-sky ideas that that type of research contributes to, right? Like things that you might see in a sci-fi movie 50, 100 years from now, say that happens, you think, hey, I, I did research that was related to this. Yeah, I mean, w- I mean, one thing that I'm really, like it just got published a few weeks ago, actually. So we had a really nice paper that came out of, you know, the end of my PhD and my, um, like start of my fellowship in Australia, looking at treatments that can reorganize scar tissue, okay? And so, you know, I remember when I started my fellowship looking at burn injuries, we kind of looked at two different areas. We're looking at the acute injury. So how when you get a burn, how can you debride that skin and then treat that, that injury to repair the skin as quickly as possible? If you can get new cells in there, new tissue quicker, okay, you reduce the amount of scarring and scar tissue you get. So then you get you reduce the amount of sort of um, you know, damage that happens longer term from a scar, right? And so we're looking at the acute phase. How can we heal wounds quicker? And then we're also looking at, okay, if you've got an established scar, which, which has a lot of problems for, you know, aesthetics, but also just functionality, right? The scar tissue in, in that respect, how can we modulate scar tissue to be more like healthy tissue? And so we started working uh, on some, some different therapeutics around how can we treat scar and make that to be more like normal tissue. And so I'm really excited about where that work's going. It's just been published, but it's in a clinical trial now and just starting a clinical trial back in Australia about sort of taking that towards the clinic. And so... You know, for me, working at this interface with materials and bioapplications, I just want to see something I've had my hands on and I've worked on, make it that journey, right? And, yeah. and be able to say that, you know, it's actually helping people and I can point to that and say, here's the therapeutic or here's the treatment strategy that, that I worked on and, and was a part of, right? Um, you know, and so one one that, the, again, if you think more recently is um, uh, there's a company that's just being sort of spun out of uh, my postdoctoral time in the Stoop Lab, right? And I was very close before taking this job was to join the startup, right, and be a part of that. And they're called Amphix Bio. And so they're doing really, really well with the peptide amplifiers sort of for tissue regeneration applications and um, starting to attract some funding in that space. And so I'm excited to see where that goes, you know, even though I'm not a part of it, you know, personally, uh, you know, I know I had my hands on those materials and believe in that technology totally from a tissue regeneration standpoint. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's the end game for me, right? I just want to see it go off and actually help people. Because yeah. You know, that's our job, right? You know, our job is to train students, help students realize their capacity and, you know, bring new knowledge to the world and hope that new knowledge makes things better for society, right? That's succinctly put. Admiral, I appreciate that. <laughs> um, all right. I, I, just a couple more questions to tie things off here. We're at 4.05. You're doing okay on time? Hmm. I'm easy. Yeah, no problem. All right. You talked earlier about how now you're teaching this polymer organic class, polymer mm-hmm. chemistry. 
but you've never taken a Palm organic class. And it's just this, it's, let me tell you folks, it's not an easy class <laughs> from the student perspective. Oh my gosh. One of my it's, least favorite, I'll tell you. It's got a reputation. There's a reason I'm a characterization chemist. Um, but now you're teaching this class. So what, can you talk about how you go into something like that where this, you've never done this before? And you, there are other examples that you provided here that really got me thinking on this. You're going into something that you've never, you've taught before, but you've never taught this class. You never took this class. Do you have any advice for folks doing something similar? Like a grad school is one thing, right? We, usually you come into grad school, you go into a PhD program, and most of what you do, you've never done before. And right. that's, that's just really hard to do. Mm -hmm. So any advice on on tackling that? Yeah, so... Yeah, let's go back to the to the unit first of all. So the, the unit we teach is it's the first kind of polymer organic chemistry unit um, that our students kind of get, right? Where it's like, okay, now we're making polymers. Here's the mechanisms. Here's how we're doing it, right? And yeah, it, it was daunting for a few reasons. One, because I hadn't taken any. I've never, you know, I'd never made step growth polymers in my, in my like before starting that, right, in my time. And now I'm teaching, you know, junior undergrads about how to do that, right? So it was definitely daunting and you know, what you're really asking about is imposter syndrome, right? How do you feel about that? And, and that's exactly what I was feeling at the time. Two reasons, because one, it was challenging content. I'd never done it before. Two, this unit has this kind of, um, you know, I guess, history in the building of kind of being the gatekeeper, right, for our, for our program. You know, you get through this, this uh, unit in polymer organic chemistry, then you can normally make it all the way through the program, right? And we have a reasonably high fail rate in terms of students coming back and repeating it, for example. And maybe the third element of this was that I took the unit over from, um, you know, Rob Story, who was, you know, a phenomenal educator, you know, and, and stalwart of the USM Polymer Science Program. And I think he taught this unit prior to me for 26 years straight, right? And so you're like, okay, Fine. he's got that dialed in. <laughs> you know what I mean? He knows what he's doing. And I'm coming in, I'm like, whoa, sorry for you guys, first group in, you know. But, but I, um, no, I, but I also, on the same breath, kind of relish that challenge a little bit, right? You know, because, okay, it has this bad history. Okay, what can I do to improve that, right? What can I do to make this more accessible for the students? You know, I love that, you know, I talked about the history of the Palmer Science Program. And part of that history is the quality of the students that we put out, right? And the respect they have in, in academia and in industry. And so part of that is, is making sure that we have a pretty rigorous curriculum, a rigorous program to get students through. And so, you know, I didn't take that, that uh, role lightly in knowing that this is a kind of high fail class and, 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 you know, a challenge for students, but, you know, an important challenge for them to meet and, you know, get past, right? And so, yeah, how do I go about that? I mean, there's a, I actually have an article, you're on my website before, but, you know, I published a little article about imposter syndrome uh, back in 2020. And uh, feel free, you can get that off the, off the website and have a read. But, you know, one thing I've learned about imposter syndrome in all the things I've faced, whether it's been elite sport, whether it's been academia, whether it's been family and, and challenges in that space, um, everyone feels it. Right, you know what I mean. Every grad, you know, grad students feel it. For sure, assistant professors feel it. You know what I mean. And I came here and started a job. You sit down in this office first day, and you know the first day after all the paperwork and stuff's done, where you sit down and you're like, okay, what do I do now? Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. Like, there's no rule book, right? No one's got anything for you to follow. It's like, you know, when you become a dad for the first time, you know, same thing. You get a baby in your hand, you're like, okay, <laughs> now you know what? what? <laughs> like, this the nurses pass you, pass you, pass my oldest to me, Tilly, and you're like, okay, here you go, right? You're like, okay. <laughs> cool right you got to figure it out you know what i mean and you have so much more from a parenting point point of view you know you realize straight away geez i was pretty hard on my own parents because they had no idea either like no one told them how to do this right and you expect so much from them so i um yeah i think the only thing i know about imposter syndrome really is that everyone suffers from it and you know my i don't know if it's advice or not or the the, the way that i've kind of 
being able to tackle that and get past it sometimes is, you know, I, there's, you know, I love the challenge, right? And I think I said at the start that I love figuring things out and solving problems. And the bigger the problem, the bigger the opportunity is to, to for the payoff, right? To solve it and get out of it. So, yeah. Wonderful. Dr. Clemens, unless you've got uh, anything else you might like to add, I think that's a great way to end it. All right. Thank you so much. No, I appreciate you guys putting this together and taking the time to spend the time with me and talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with me today. And thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode of the Polymer Science Podcast. If you have any questions for us or maybe for Dr. Clemens, reach out at polymersciencepodcast at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> I love how you put your big boy voice on that. <laughs>